Please take your copy of God's Word. Let's turn to Psalm 110 together. Psalm 110. We're continuing in this series on Christmas in the Psalms. Uh, we began with Psalm 2, and we saw how uh, the very beginning of the Psalter, the 150 Psalms that make up the book of Psalms, we call it the Psalter, how the very beginning of the Psalter, God has this song his people sang concerning this king that he places on his holy hill called Zion, this king that's in the line of David, but ultimately is God's own son. And this king will rule the nations. Uh, in fact, the nations are encouraged, kiss the son lest he be angry. Um, and so there's this element of submission to this king. Last time we looked at Psalm 45, uh, a song that was written for uh, a, a royal wedding, a uh, song in praise of the beauty and excellency of the king, but also by extension, the beauty and excellency of his bride. And we talked about how the, the king has come to woo and win a bride for himself, namely you and me. The king's come to win us, to see us as, as beautiful as he is, because of course we're wearing his robes the very robes of righteousness. This morning we come to Psalm 110, another psalm of David, another royal psalm, but this psalm has a bit of a twist because not only does it speak of a king who will rule the nations, but this king actually has another character, another office. He's a king who's actually a priest. And we need this king to be both, not just a king who rules over us, who, who seeks to destroy all his and our enemies, but a king who intercedes for us, who is not just a forever king, but a forever priest. That's what this song teaches us of. It's what we hope to see by the help of the Holy Spirit. So let's ask him for his help. Would you pray with me, please? Indeed, Almighty God, we do come desiring to hear from the word of the Lord. We, we thank you, Holy Spirit, for this book. Um, in this book we call the Holy Scriptures, uh, there's 66 books by 40 authors written over 1,500 years, a, a remarkable collection, a remarkable book. And yet, Lord, there's a, we know there's actually a single author because all Scripture is God-breathed, is breathed out by you so that we might receive instruction, yes, but ultimately that we might be led by the hand to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, please do this work. Open our eyes of faith that we might see glorious riches this morning in this gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So those of you who have children, can you think back and remember 
to when they were born, whether it was quickly or whether it took a while. Can you remember some of those circumstances? Can you remember how you felt when that little voice was heard crying, screaming there in the hospital room, perhaps? Do you remember when you brought your child home? What that was like? Do you remember your child's first teeth? First steps? The first words they said? Do you you remember wondering for the first time or the thousandth time? I wonder what he's going to be when he grows up. I wonder what she's going to do when she grows up. What will you do, little one? Where will you go? Who will you meet? What will you be like? Don't you remember wondering those things? I think it's that kind of wondering that's behind the hymn. What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping, whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch is keeping? It's the kind of wondering that that shows up in that more contemporary song. Mary, did you know that your baby boy will one day walk on water? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy would, has come to make you new, that the child you delivered will someday deliver you? Of course, Mary did know some of this, knew what this child was, knew something of what he might do. The angel Gabriel, as we've already heard, even the past few weeks, had told her that he would be the son of the Most High, and he would also inherit the throne of his father, David. He would be both son of David and son of God. She knew that, that this child would rule from David's throne forever. He'd be a forever king, ruling over a forever kingdom. But, but unless her mind went back to the Psalms, to the songs that God's people had sung for hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of years, she might not have connected all of the dots that this child that was born to her, this child whom angels greet with anthems sweet, would, would not only be a king, but according to this psalm, would also be a priest. He would combine these roles, these offices together. And that would be how he would deliver Mary, but also deliver us, you and me. He would combine these things. He would be a forever king, but he would also be a a forever priest. There were hints of this already in the Old Testament. In in 2 Samuel chapter 6, when David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, first into the tabernacle, later it would be placed into a temple that Solomon would build. But in 2 Samuel 6, he's bringing the Ark of the Covenant in, and David the king does what? He puts on the linen ephod, the, the clothing of the priest. He offers sacrifices. He does the priestly act of putting God's name upon the people as he blesses them. These are all priestly functions performed by a king. In 1 Kings chapter 8, after the temple is built, Solomon does this same kind of work. He actually intercedes with God for the people, saying if they sin in such and such a way and they pray, and they pray towards this temple, forgive their sin, then he gives them priestly gifts and he, he blesses them again, sends them home. 
And then in Zechariah chapter 6, after six night visions that unfold in Zechariah's prophecy, it concludes with God saying to Joshua, or better Hebrew, Yahshua, the same name that Jesus would bear. Jesus is Greek for Yeshua. Joshua would, the priest, the high priest of God's people, receives a crown. And he's called the branch, the one who would rebuild God's temple and sit and rule on his throne. And so there are hints, foreshadowings in the Old Testament that there would be this combination, this connection. There would be someone perhaps who would come who would be a king and also a priest. But here in Psalm 110, we're told about this combination of offices. We're, we're told that this Messiah would bring these things together. He would be a king and that forever, but he would also be a forever kind of priest. He would be the one, the Messiah would, the Christ, who would bring these offices together. And so that's what Jesus would be when he grew up. That's what he would do as Mary held this child on his la her lap as he was sleeping. She would be holding the one who would be both a forever king, who would rule over his world, and a forever priest who would ever live to intercede for his people. And friends, you need Jesus to be both. You need Jesus to be both a forever king for you and a forever priest for you. You need a forever king to rule over you, to one day set this world to rights, to bring about a condition in which all his blessings might flow as far as the curse is found. And you need Jesus to be a forever priest for you, who will continue to plead your cause before the throne of God, continue to represent you as your advocate, continue to say five bleeding wounds I bear received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers for this one and that one over and over again. You need Jesus to be both. And that's what the child came to do. He came to be a forever king. That's what the psalm tells us. And in fact, this psalm, it really centers on two oracles, two places where God speaks, two sets of what we might call covenant promises. The first promise is right there in verse 1. You see it there, your Bibles are still open. Psalm 110 verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, there is so much there. First, in, in your Bibles, you see that first Lord. It's in small caps, at least if you have an ESV, it is. When you see that in the Old Testament, that Lord is standing in for the Hebrew name Yahweh. Yahweh, the covenant maker, the covenant keeper. The name that was revealed to Moses, I am that I am, Yahweh. Yahweh says to my Lord, that Lord is the Hebrew word Adonai, the word for master, sovereign one, almighty one. So, so the Lord says to my Lord, master, but, but who's my Lord? I mean, what's that about? Well, the title tells you it's a psalm of David. It's attributed to David. And so if, if David wrote this song, as the title suggests, maybe David's thinking of future kings that come from his line. 
And he's looking down the corridor of time in a kind of prophetic way. And he's speaking to these kings on behalf of God. Yahweh says to these lords to come, these kings that are coming from my line. But, but would David actually call his future generations my lord, my master, my sovereign one? I don't think so. No, I, I think he's thinking of a future king that was so great that this future king would in fact function as his own Lord as well. And that's exactly how Jesus read this passage. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 to 45, Jesus said in that place that David was talking about the future Christ, the future anointed one, the Messiah. And that he was talking about someone who is more than a son of David. Jesus said, no, David's talking about someone who is my Lord, my almighty master, my almighty ruler. He was talking ultimately about a king who is God himself. And so Yahweh is saying to this Messiah, to this master who is divine, sit at my right hand. What's that? Why, why does Yahweh say to this Lord, to this Messiah, sit at my right hand? Well, the right hand position is the position of power and authority. And so, so Yahweh is saying to the Messiah, sit in the place of power and authority until your enemies are in submission to you. Well, put these things together. And what you have then is this Messiah who David sees as his Lord, as divine himself, he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And because he is seated there, God says, I'm going to subdue the people under you. They're going to be like a footstool. Your, your feet are going to be upon them. So you're going to rule over them. And these peoples will not only be submissive to you, they'll actually offer themselves to you. They'll be in relationship with you. you. You will subdue them, but they will respond to you. They'll offer themselves to you, which is what verses 2 and 3 say. You see it? The song goes, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Now, Verse 3 here in Psalm 110 is actually one of the most difficult verses to translate in all of the book of Psalms. Um, your ESV Bible actually has a little footnote, and when you go down, it says, the meaning of the Hebrew is uncertain. Um, that's always reassuring when you find that, right? Um, if you have an NIV Bible in your lap this morning, what your NIV Bible is saying there is, your troops will be willing on the, your day of battle. Arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. Wow, that's like really different. But, but whichever rendering is exactly right, in broad outlines, what we can say is this. When this powerful king goes forth to subdue his enemies, he does so in such a way that he will rule and they will respond. Rule in the midst of your enemies, verse 2. And they will respond by offering themselves to him. Whether they, they offer themselves to him uh, in holy garments, in garments of worship as a kind of kingdom of priests, 
or whether they join his army to go forth to fight his battles and to refresh his spirit. Now, this picture of the Messiah as a great king, as a king who subdues the nations, remember Psalm 2, why do the nations rage? Well, God laughs at them. Why? Because he's, he has installed his king on Zion's holy hill to subdue them, to, to, to place them in a position under his feet. Uh, that, that's the keynote throughout the Psalms and speaking of the Messiah. And so this, this first part here, that, that the Messiah is going to be a forever king, that's not unusual. Now, what, what's unusual is what comes next, the second promise or the second oracle Namely, that this very king is going to be a forever priest. So verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, look at how strong that promise is. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Now, unlike back in 1 Samuel chapter 2, where uh, dealing with Eli, one of the priests in, in the line from Aaron, God did, in fact, change his mind concerning Eli, stripped him of his office of priest. Now, that won't happen with the Messiah. No, the Lord is sworn. He has taken an oath. He will not ever, ever, ever change his mind about the Messiah's role. Well, what's his role? You are a priest forever. You're a forever priest. Now, in order to get that, we have to have some background in the first five books of Moses, and especially the, the regulations in Leviticus and Numbers concerning the way the priests work. In, in Numbers chapter 8, it is spelled out quite clearly that the priests only work for 25 years. They begin their priestly functions at the age of 25, at the age of 50, they must retire. They, they can continue on as kind of assisting priests, but in terms of carrying out their priestly functions for themselves in a kind of lead role, that work is done at the age of 50, but not with this priest. No, not with this priest. Now, this priest will hold his office forever. You will be a priest forever. It will never come to an end. This priest will never cycle out, never rotate out. He will always make intercession. He will always stand in God's presence. He will always advocate for his people. How's this possible? Well, it's because God says you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Who's that? Melchizedek. What's that? Well, Melchizedek shows up in Genesis chapter 14. You might remember that Lot has been captured by five kings, one of whom is the king of Sodom. Abraham, his brother, his, his, his uncle, goes after him and, and rescues him and brings him back and has all kinds of booty that he brings with him. And as he comes back victorious, Melchizedek, whose name means king of righteousness, Melchizedek, who rules as the king of Salem, the king of peace, he comes forth to greet Abraham. And what does he bring with him? He brings bread and wine. And he gives Abraham a priestly blessing. And in response to the work of this priest, Abraham does what the later Old Testament law requires. He tithes to this priest, Melchizedek. Later in the New Testament, uh, quite a big deal is made in Hebrews 5, 6, 5 and 7 especially 
that Melchizedek shows up on the scene. We don't know where he came from. We don't know what he later does. It doesn't seem like he has any descent. And it seems like he continues on forever and seems to establish an alternative priestly line from the line of Aaron. And so when the psalmist here reports God's word, God's oracle concerning the Messiah, concerning this this Adonai, this Lord, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, what he's saying is this forever king is going to be a forever priest. He's going to be a priest king who rules from the city of Salem, from Jerusalem, from Zion itself. He brings forth bread and wine. He blesses the people. That's what this Messiah is going to do. He's going to be a powerful king, a kingly priest. He's going to do this work forever. God has promised and will not change his mind. That's who the child is. The one that was on Mary's laps sleeping. The one that the angels came to adore. The one to whom Magi brought gifts. That's who the child is. The one who walked on water. The one who gave sight to the blind man. The one who stilled the storm with his hand. That's who the child is. That's who Jesus is. He's a forever king. He's a forever priest. And friends, that's who you need him to be. You need Jesus to be both a forever king for you and a forever priest for you. Because as a forever priest for you, Jesus is an eternal source of salvation for those who trust in him. That's what Hebrews 7 will go on to say, that Jesus, the forever priest, is able to save to the uttermost. I love the fact that the ESV kept that translation from the old King James Version. Other modern translations have Jesus is able to save completely. That's what to the uttermost means. But I love the language that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost because it tells you, my friends, that Jesus is able to save you not just halfway there or mostly there, as though there's some portion of salvation that somehow belongs to you, or or that Jesus is only able to save you 70% or 80%, but you've got to supply the West. No, Jesus, the forever priest, he's able to save you. He's able to rescue you. He's able to deliver you all the way to the uttermost, completely, with nothing left for you to do. What does that mean? It means no matter what you've done, no matter what you've done, some of you think that us pastors are utterly naive. We don't know how the real world works. I've got a secret for you. We actually know far more about how the world works and the messes people get in than you do because we hear them all. We hear things that could make a bald man's hair curl. And no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter how many times you've done those things, every time you've made a new resolution, I'm not going to, and you do it again, and you do it again, and you falter and fail. No matter. This Jesus, this forever priest, he is able to save you to the uttermost. He is able to save you completely. You can go to Jesus, the forever priest, and he will intercede for you and pardon will be gained and mercy will be found because this priest delights to rescue sinners. 
He delights to rescue those who are messy and are fallible and blow it over and again. That's what this priest does. He's able to do it. You need this Jesus to be a forever priest for you. But you need him too to be your forever king. Because all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. And because, in fact, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus, Jesus is able to defeat all your enemies, as well as all his enemies. What does that mean? It means Jesus is able to root out sin from your life. You wonder if you could possibly be different, if you could ever be new. Jesus is able to make you new. He has all authority in heaven and earth to do that. Jesus is able to rule over all principalities and all powers. He's able to rule over all things for his church. He's able to reach the nations. He's able to reach those nations far beyond our walls. He is able to transform our city. Some of you are frightened to death of Memphis. I get it. I get it. As I wrote to the mayor this week, after yet another incident in our parking lot, it feels like we live in Gotham. But listen, Jesus is able to bring his light to shine in this darkness, the darkness of our city, in such a way that the darkness is driven back. Driven back powerfully and really. Jesus is able to bring righteousness and justice to the bear. He is able to make all things new. Why? He's king. And all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. But listen, Jesus is more than able to do these things. Now, what this psalm tells us is that he will. He will. His victory is sure. Look at verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the days of the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Notice there's a bit of shift here. Before the Lord, Adonai, sits at the right hand of Yahweh. Now the Lord somehow, Adonai, is at uh, the Lord's right hand. There's a kind of merging going on here. God himself sits at the Messiah's right hand. They're so united together that while there's distinctions, there's not difference. The Messiah and God himself are one. And so it's not surprising that he will execute judgment upon the nations. It's not surprising that he will deal with injustice fully and finally. In the day of his wrath, God will deal the death blow to all that is sad and wrong, to all that is evil and unjust. And his victory is so certain that he will drink at the brook and lift up his head. Refreshment, exaltation is promised for the Messiah, Jesus. And so we long for the day when we will see him do this when we will see him coming on the clouds to bring human history to an end. We long for the day when the nations who live in rebellion to this God and his Christ shall bow the knee to him. And friends, they will bow. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We long for that day when all that is sad will come in true, when the dead in Christ rise and they're reunited to their souls. They're made new and prepared to rule with Christ. That day is coming. And my friends, this season, this Christmas season, it's not just a time to think about Jesus' first coming, but to meditate upon his final coming when the fullness of his victory shall be seen and sin and woe, death and hell will be overthrown. 
And we will see him subject all things to himself, destroying every rule and every authority and every power and even the last enemy, death itself. The victory is certain. He will rule over all because God has put and will finally put all things in subjection to him. And he does this work and he gains this victory for his own glory, yes. But in the end, he does it for you. He does it for me. He does it for us. He intercedes for us. He pleads his wounds for us. He translates our prayers for us. He deals with our sins for us. He defeats our enemies for us. Friends, he came for us and he united us to his body and soul forever. That's the wonder of it all. That's why we rejoice and praise and sing hallelujah and gloria and all the rest. It's why we sing forth today the conqueror goeth, who the foe, sin and woe, death and hell o'erthroweth. God is man, man to deliver. His dear son now is one with our blood forever. That's why Jesus came. He came to be your forever king and your forever priest. It's good news. Christ for us. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do bless you for this good news that in Jesus Christ we have one who is our forever king and our forever priest. And so, Lord, this day we rejoice and we praise and we sing hail. Hail the conquering hero. Hail the Lord of life. Hail the one who rules forever. Hail the one who intercedes forever, who is able to be a priest because of the power of his indestructible life able to save us to the uttermost. We bless you. We praise you. We rejoice in you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.